On May 10th, 1940, King George VI invited Winston Churchill to Buckingham Palace. Britain had been fully engaged in war against Nazi Germany for eight solid months at that point. And on that very morning, Germany had invaded France, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Belgium, inching its way closer and closer to Great Britain, which Germany had declared it would soon conquer. Upon receiving the call from the king, Churchill understood exactly what was about to take place. The British monarch asked him to become prime minister, effectively asking him to step in and save the country at its darkest hour and at a moment of unspeakable danger. Churchill's youngest child at the time was 17-year-old Mary. She was listening to the radio that day when she first heard the news that her father was now uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain and that the king had asked him to save the country in face of Nazi forces. We're told that upon hearing this announcement, Mary paused to pray for her father and then simply went about her day. You see, Mary had every reason to believe that her father would do exactly as the king had asked him. She was very confident that her father would indeed save Britain. She knew her father, and she just assumed that he would. Like many of you, my attention these last few weeks have been increasingly turned to the headline news. It seems that there is uncertainty and there is danger lurking around every corner with the events in Eastern Europe just sending shockwaves that can be felt even here. So needless to say, these events don't do much to instill a sense of security or stability in a person, but like 17-year-old Mary, we also carry on, fully assured that our Father will do everything that he has promised us. So we're going to turn our attention today because given everything that is going on in the world, I thought that these chapters of Scripture were especially timely and especially relevant. And there are two major themes, the sovereignty of God and the security of man are absolutely worthy of our immediate consideration. Last week, in a rare departure from the norm of the Old Testament, the focus of the narrative shifted away from the Israelites and onto a Moabite king and a Mesopotamian diviner. Numbers chapter 22 was a fascinating portion of scripture to look at. It, it was full of drama and comedy and irony and paradox. It was a chapter in which the most dull-witted and stubborn of all creatures, the donkey, was shown to have more spiritual insight than a world-renowned diviner and the king who hired him. And yet, as Christy pointed out last week, when we ended chapter 22, we were really left with more questions than answers. So it seems that we have plenty to discover this week as we begin now in chapter 23. And when we pick up reading in verse 1, Balak and Balaam have just now finally met, and the king takes the diviner to a high place in the land of Moab where he can look down and catch a glimpse of the Israelites down below. Then Balaam said to Balak, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. So Balak did as Balaam directed and they offered a bull and a ram on each altar. 
Throughout the course of this narrative, we're going to see Balaam and Balak doing everything that they can possibly do to secure a favorable reaction from the Lord. They are building altars. They are offering the most costly of sacrifices. They are changing locations and the manner in which they approach the Lord, all in an attempt to finagle the situation to achieve their desired outcome. Now, maybe as you were reading this text, it seemed obvious to you that, of course, these tactics would not work. But I do think that it's worth pausing to consider how often we try similar tactics. How often we mistakenly believe that if we can put on all the right behaviors, if we can act in all the right ways, and if we can pray in just the right way, saying just the right things, then perhaps the Lord will do what we want him to do. But whenever our outward approach toward the Lord becomes more important than our inward posture before him, then we also should stop and consider our reasons for and our means of approaching the Lord our God. Verse 3, Balaam said to Balak, stay here by your burnt offering while I am gone. Maybe the Lord will meet with me. I will tell you whatever he reveals to me. So he went to a barren hill. God met with him, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. There's a brief moment here for the reader when it seems that perhaps all of Balak and Balaam's manipulations have actually worked. The Lord comes to meet with Balaam, and the diviner has the chance to do the thing that the king has hired him to do. So let's see how it goes. Verse 5. Then the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and say what I tell you. So he returned to Balak, who was standing there by his burnt offerings with all the officials of Moab. Balaam proclaimed his poem. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, put a curse on Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? So very quickly, any fear that the reader had that God may have well done Balak's bidding is immediately dispersed. Instead of cursing the Israelites as he had been hired to do, the diviner is forced to confess the fact that he doesn't have the power to do so. Instead, the Lord uses the mouth that was hired to curse his people as the means through which he proves his blessing of them. So in verse 5, you may have noticed that it says that the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth. So we can take that to mean that the words that Balaam spoke in each of these oracles were the very words of God. Balaam may have been the one who was reading the lines, but it was the Lord who had written the script. Psalm 64.8 says of the evildoer that they will be made to stumble, that their very own tongues will work against them. In Numbers chapter 22, the Lord opened the mouth of a donkey so that it, it could speak wisdom to Balaam. And then in Numbers chapter 23, the Lord opened Balaam's mouth so that he could speak wisdom to Balak. I think that this is actually supposed to strike us as quite funny. 
I think the reader is supposed to see the Lord using a literal jackass in chapter 22 to speak wisdom, so that when he, in the very next chapter over, uses Balaam to do the very same thing, we are clearly to see the parallel point. The Lord is providing us with a little bit of insider commentary on the character of Balaam here, and the picture that he is painting for us is absolutely, I mean absolutely, unflattering. So I know it can be a little bit intimidating to jump into a section of scripture with this one, with its poetry-like configuration and its prophecy and its imagery and its illusions, but I think that once we hang on a second and kind of get our bearings, you'll see that most of it is fairly quite straightforward. So when we look at the oracles as a whole, we can see the message from God to Balak and Balaam boiling down to two simple points. Israel is blessed, they cannot be cursed. So through Balaam's first oracle, the Lord focuses in on his blessing of Israel and he provides three distinct um, evidences of his special relationship, his blessing upon this people. And the first evidence we see in verse nine, and that is their distinctiveness. God had declared Israel to be his chosen people, his covenant people, and we have talked at length as we have studied through the books of Exodus and Numbers what that was supposed to mean. They were his holy people, they were set apart, they were distinct, and they were different from all other nations. The second evidence of God's blessing upon Israel was their number. In verse 10, one of the promised signs given by God regarding the blessing of this people was gonna be quite simply the sheer number of them. God had compared the number of people who were going to come from Abraham to the amount of dust on the ground and to the number of stars in the sky. And this is a promise that we have actually watched the fulfillment of as we have journeyed with this people from the book of Genesis, from their beginnings, on through the wilderness to right here in the book of Numbers. And then the third evidence of God's blessing upon Israel is their end. Balaam spoke, let me die the death of the upright, let the end of my life be like theirs. The blessing of God's covenant people is an eternal blessing. So it does not end with physical death, but it continues on even past the demise of our body. So we see that in this first oracle, God focuses in on his blessing of Israel. In his sovereignty, the Lord has chosen Israel to be his covenant people. And it is because of that special covenant relationship that they share with him that they are secure from their beginning to their end. However, Balak seems still utterly unconvinced of God's sovereignty and his people's security. So preparations are made once again to try and curse the Israelites. The entire entourage travels to a different place in the hopes of inspiring Balaam's curse-making abilities. And then they offer more sacrifices on more altars that they have built because they are hoping that they can kind of get God 
on board with their plan as well. So their hopes are high when God comes to meet with Balaam again. But before the diviner can even get a word in edgewise, the Lord puts another message in his mouth. So the first oracle focused in on God's blessing of Israel, and then the second oracle is going to look at the exact same topic, but just from a slightly different angle by looking at the enemy's inability to curse them. So God provides Balak with at least two distinct reasons regarding why his attempts to curse Israel will fail. And so we see that first reason in verses 19 through 21, and that has to do with the fact that God's intentions toward his people are unchanging. So here in these verses, the Lord declares what is true about himself, but at the same time, he offers a critique of Balak and Balaam's theological assumptions. You see, God was not like the other gods with whom Balak and Balaam may have been acquainted. He could not be manipulated. He could not be coerced. He was neither fickle nor temperamental. God had made a promise to his people, and he would not recall it. Hebrews 6.18 assures us of the fact that it is impossible for God to lie. Now, the meaning of this extends beyond the fact that God does not speak lies, and it points us to an even greater truth that the very nature of God is truth, that all of his intentions and all of his purposes are utterly true and they are utterly reliable. God had made a promise to this people and he would not recall the promise. So as long as they kept that covenant relationship with him, because his intention since the inception of this people had been to bless them, then there would be no disaster and there would be no trouble for them. As we move into verses 21 through 24, we see the second reason why Balak's attempts to curse Israel would fail is because the very presence of God was actually with this people. So it wasn't just that God merely favored the Israelites, but it was the fact that he actually dwelt among this people. It was the presence of God that had freed the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt. It was the presence of God that had sustained and provided for the Israelites during all of those many years in the wilderness. And it was the presence of God among them that was soon going to secure the victory over the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Verse 25. Then Balak told Balaam, don't curse them and don't bless them. But Balaam answered him, didn't I tell you whatever the Lord says I must do? So twice now through these oracles, we've seen the security of God's people tied to the covenant relationship that they have with him, the only sovereign God. And even so, Balak remains as eager as ever 
to proclaim this curse around the Israelites. So the entire group, yes, once again, journeys this time to one of the highest places in Moab, where Balaam can actually look down and see the entire camp of Israel. So the last two times, the Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth, and this time, the Spirit of God came upon him. So something different is happening here. In these instances, in the first few instances, it wasn't just that Balaam heard the voice of the Lord telling him what to say, but in these last two oracles, he actually sees the vision of what is happening. The Lord opens up his spiritual eyes and he sees the substance of the revelation. Now, the third and the fourth oracles differ somewhat from the first two in that they include visionary predictions of Israel's future. So let's see what we can learn. 24-2, when Balaam looked up and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came on him and he proclaimed his poem. So in this third oracle, we have a prediction involving Israel's immediate future. Balaam sees a people living in peace and prosperity, a people increasing in fruitfulness and in number, a people advancing in honor and in power and in influence. And the Lord even provides Balak and Balaam with the key to their and their people's future demise or prosperity when he tells them, those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. How they treat the Israelites will determine how the Lord will treat them. But even this was not enough to quench Balak's desire to proclaim this curse upon the Israelites. The Noahite king became furious with the diviner and he accuses him of blessing the people of Israel instead of cursing him as he was hired to do. So even after all of this time, Balak still believes wrongly. He still believes that it was Balaam who had the power to do these things. So we see that the Lord provides him a warning through a fourth and final oracle. Now, whereas the third oracle provided us with a glimpse into Israel's immediate future, this oracle looks into the more distant future. Verse 17, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. So this prophecy goes on to describe the defeat of a number of different nations, some of which we can clearly understand the reference to, and some of the other ones remain even still a bit obscure. But what we can know is that several of these prophecies find at least their partial fulfillment through the reign of Israel's King David. And that was some 300 years after the time of Balak and Balaam. And you looked up many of those references as you worked your way through the questions in your study guide this week. We also pointed you there to the fact that there is an even fuller realization of, of these prophecies through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, who had defeated sin and who has defeated death and who one day 
will destroy all dominion, all authority, and all power until all of the enemies of God and his people are under his feet. So through these oracles, we have seen two points emphasized repeatedly. God is sovereign, his people are secure. God has pointed to his past fulfillments of his promises to Israel to illustrate this point. God has pointed out how he is presently fulfilling his promises to Israel to illustrate this point. And God has even provided Balak and Balaam with glimpses into the near and distant future to prove how he is going to continue fulfilling his promises to Israel in order to prove this point. So I don't want us to leave this section of scripture without pausing to recognize how in pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ in a prophecy given to a Moabite king through a Mesopotamian diviner, we get just another chance to see the heart that God has for all people. The Lord wasn't merely providing Balak and Belong with information through these oracles, but he was also providing them with an invitation. And we don't have to wait too incredibly long to see how they are going to respond. So perhaps like me, you weren't entirely sure what you were supposed to do with numbers 23 and 24 when you began studying it. But I hope that now when you leave here tonight, you can remember very clearly two important points that are of immediate significance, and that is because God is sovereign, his people who rest rightly in a covenant relationship with him are secure. So as we continue on into Numbers chapter 25, the focus of the narrative return once again to Israel. Whereas chapters 23 through 24 highlight the security of those who are inside a covenant relationship with the Lord, chapter 25 warns us of the very grave danger of stepping outside of that covenant relationship with the Lord. 25.1, while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Israelites have been blissfully unaware of the battle to curse them that was taking place high atop Peor while they enjoyed the bounty and safety and security of God's blessing upon them, camped peacefully in the valley below. You know, how many of you were absolutely shocked in your study guide when you discovered that it was Balaam who taught Balak how to entice the Israelites into sin in this way? Yeah, like many of you, I did not know quite what to make of Balaam as I was initially reading through these chapters. But what Numbers 22 through 24 do not make clear for us, other portions of Scripture make abundantly clear. 
So it appears that since he could not curse Israel, he found another way to fulfill the wishes of Balak, who had not missed an opportunity to remind the diviner how richly he could be rewarded. And because of this, Scripture judges Balaam to be a self-seeking opportunist with absolutely no regard for the will of God or the good of his people. But that storyline is one that is to be continued because we will hear more from Balaam before our study of Numbers comes to a close. What Balak could not accomplish through the use of curses or armed men or military, he was able to accomplish quite simply through appealing to the curiosity and the appetites and the lust of the Israelites. Balak could not convince the Lord to curse the people of Israel, but the Israelites in their own unfaithfulness to the covenant brought down the Lord's curse upon themselves. A plague breaks out among the people and begins to spread wildly among them. And this just head-spinning turn of events from the end of chapter 24 to the beginning of chapter 25 serves us with a very powerful illustration that, ladies, we are indeed more endangered by the charms of the world than we are the terrors of it. Now, in order to halt the plague, atonement had to be made. God orders the death of the tribal leaders who would serve as representatives for the people. And this is just another vivid reminder of the very great cost of sin. But before an execution can even take place, while the people were still yet weeping outside of the entrance of the tent of meeting, An Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community. In order to put Phineas's extreme actions in the verses that follow into context, we have to do everything that we can to try to rightly understand the full scope of what we have going on here. So Zimri, a son of one of the leaders in Israel parades Cosby, a a daughter of one of the leaders of Midian, straight through the heart of the Israelites' camp, past Moses, past the tabernacle, and all of the people who are just wailing outside of it to his family and then into their tent. And if you can use your imaginations for just a second, they weren't going in there to have a nice long conversation. But this wasn't a case of star-crossed lovers. Instead, it was more likely a rogue attempt to make a political alliance, which would yoke the people of Israel, who were God's chosen people, holy and set aside, distinct and different from all other people. It would yoke Israel to Midian, who in these previous chapters had just joined forces with Moab to bring down a curse upon Israel. So this was an extremely dangerous situation for the Israelites, and not just from a covenantal perspective because of their relationship with the Lord, but also on on a very real, practical, physical level, these people intended to do them harm. 
So we have that aspect of it, but then we also have this. At the very moment when so many in Israel were lamenting of their sin, when they were weeping and welling and just begging the Lord to relent from his judgment of it, we have Zimri who instead sees fit to simply invite the judgment of the Lord. Through his actions, he was bringing the apostasy that had previously been occurring only outside of the camp of Israel right into the heart of the Israelites' camp. And in doing so, he was practically just daring one of the leaders or one of the judges in Israel to do something about it. And one such man takes him up on that dare. Verse 7 When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into his tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. As far as gruesome biblical scenes go, this one is up there with the worst of them. The description given here leads the reader to believe that the the couple was interrupted even during the very act of intimacy with the spear being driven through both of them, through their bellies, or as some of the translations render it, through their genitals. So the message being very clearly communicated by the Lord that there would be no alliance between Israel and Midian, political or otherwise. So I don't believe the Lord to be a fan of gratuitous violence. We're given the grisly details of this scene for a reason, and it is to underline for us the very grave nature of this sin that Zimring and Cosby had committed and the Lord's absolute revulsion of it. So when we read this scene, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the Lord judged Phineas's actions against Zenri and Cosby in this situation to be exactly the thing that his justice called for. And we know that because of the Lord's response to Phineas's actions, immediately the plague was halted. And then in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moses. Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal. So God said that Phineas was zealous among them with his zeal. So in other words, God is saying that Phineas acted like me. Phineas did exactly as I would have done. So that means that Phineas was not just acting out of this rash emotional response when he took these actions, but rather when he took those actions, he was acting with the very heart and the very mind of God. And that is something that should cause all of us to deeply consider our own attitudes towards sin and unrighteousness. So something else that I found very interesting 
that, that I didn't expect at all to find when I began studying this passage is the commentary provided on Phineas's actions in Psalm 106. So in, in Psalm 106, the actions that Phineas took here are said to be credited to him as righteousness. Now, that phrase, credited to him as righteousness, immediately stood out to me, and maybe it stood out to some of you too, because we've seen it before. We've seen it in the account of Abraham. In fact, the only other time in all of Scripture when that exact phrase, credited to him as righteousness, is used is in reference to the person of Abraham. So in the Abraham account, we know that it was his faith. It, it, it was his belief in the promises that the Lord had made him that was credited to him as righteousness. And in the New Testament, Paul grabs a hold of that example given to us by Abraham to teach new believers that the only thing that is ever credited to any of us as righteousness is our faith, is our belief in the work that Jesus Christ has done. So when that exact phrase, credited to him as righteousness, is used here in reference to the actions that Phineas took in Numbers 25, that should clue us all into the fact that what Phineas did there was an act of faith. Phineas believed in the seriousness of the covenant that God had made with this people. Phineas actually believed the Lord when he said, if you obey my commands, you will be my holy people. Phineas believed the Lord for these things and he was zealous for the holiness of the people of God. And I wonder how many of us in here can say the very same thing. So to be clear, because I certainly don't need a whole bunch of vigilante women's Bible study participants set loose in the city of the woodlands, in Phineas's role as priest, he was given the unique task of defending the tabernacle against defilement, even to the point of putting offenders to death. So none of you have been given that unique task, so you can just go ahead and put your spears back in your purses. But when we look at the language that the New Testament uses in, in reference to how we are to behave in, in light of our very own propensity to sin, we see echoes of the actions that Phineas took here. Colossians 3.5 says, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And I'm going to tell you what I found to be just simply bone-chilling as I was studying this week. And that's how those verses in Colossians go on. The very next verse in Colossians after that goes on to say that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I don't want to add on one more reason for the wrath of God to come more quickly to this earth. 
Instead, I would rather do everything that I can in my power to just delay that wrath, to push it back just a little bit further so that then we can pray for those that we know and love who have not yet stepped in to the security of that covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. And women, our testimony to, to the truth of these things is more incredibly important than I think some of you even know. We are to treat anything in our lives that displays a lack of seriousness regarding the special relationship that we have with the Lord in the same manner that Phineas acted in Numbers 25, we are to put it to death. The extreme actions that Phineas took in Numbers 25 against sin, which pushed back the wrath of God and, and provided a means of preserving peace between God and his people. For shadows for us, the very extreme actions that Jesus Christ would take against sin at Calvary, which also would turn back the wrath of God and provide a means through which any of us who believe in him can find peace with God. But women, the message from this portion of scripture could not be any more clear. For the one who does not believe, John 3.36 tells us, no peace will be found. The wrath of God remains on him. And once again, I say that our witness to the truth of these things is so incredibly important. We have been given a terrifying picture of what that wrath looks like through the episode of Zimri and Cosby. And as Numbers 25 comes to a close, we are given yet another picture. Verse 16. The Lord told Moses, attack the Midianites and strike them dead, for they attacked you with the treachery that they used against you in the Peor incident. They did the same in the case involving their sister Cosby, daughter of the Midianite leader, who was killed the day the plague came at Peor. So because the Midianites treated the Israelites as their enemy, the Lord commands the Israelites to treat the Midianites as theirs. But that is another storyline that is to be continued because we again will pick up on it just a little bit later in our story of numbers. What came to my mind most forcibly as I was finishing chapter 25 was really just the very great mercy of God who has provided a means through which all of us, each of us having at one time having been described as an enemy of God ourselves, a means through which we could be reconciled to him. I mean, but really this entire section of scripture has displayed the full wonder of God's grace in face of humanity's habitual inclination 
towards sin. I mean, these chapters have been a veritable treasure trove of warnings and assurances that I hope keeps us busy in prayer for days. Through the person of Balak, we have received the warning of the one who was repeatedly confronted with the truth, but who just absolutely refused to believe it. Through Balaam, we are presented with the warning of the one who, whose eyes were actually opened by the Lord, who, who spoke the words of God, who actually saw with the sight of God, and who still refused the invitation of God. And through the Israelites, we're given the warning from a people who knew so full well the beauty of the covenant that they shared with the Lord and their safety and security in him because of it. And yet even so, forfeited all to step outside the boundaries of it. So those are our warnings. So what are our assurances? Well, we can be fully assured that God is sovereign, that he is the ultimate source of all power and all authority, and that because of that, those of us who rest rightly in a covenant relationship with him, we are absolutely secure, and that will not change no matter what tomorrow's headlines might bring. There is no power, there is no authority, there is no dominion that can threaten the security of the people of God who can curse whom God has not cursed but we've also seen how easily we can step outside of that security by willfully being unfaithful to the covenant that we have made with him. So women, let us leave here tonight with a fresh resolve to fight for faithfulness, both in the face of our enemies and in the face of our own habitual inclination towards sin. Let us be a group of women who are as eager to obtain the blessing of God as Balak was to proclaim his curse.